the seas of space are silent, untainted save for brief tentative thrusts. They are yet untouched by the corrupting hand of man. Yet if destruction and decay seem exportable vices, they are not iniquities native to one nation, nor to one planet, nor a single galaxy. And if the mute heavens were a sentient being, they would scream in awful agony at the pure, unrelenting evil which radiates from the star-bridging frigate. The next instant, if instance there be in a relativity-mad cosmos of infinite dimensions, there is a passing sensation of weightlessness, nay, of non-existence, and then the massive mothership of the scroll is back in normal space again, but this time in the fifth quadrant of the far-off Andromeda galaxy. Welcome to Artifacts of Infinity, where we dive into the infinite abyss of Marvel's cosmic universe. I'm Jonathan Hudson. And I'm Everett Christensen. This is episode 11, and today is part 2 of our Kree Scroll War coverage, the entirety of which covers Avengers Volume 1, numbers 89 through 97. We will be covering 92 through 94. Episode 10 covers some fundamentals of the Avengers. If you'd like to catch up, we recommend that you listen to it first. Last episode, we covered a very Kree-centric story arc, and this episode will be very Skrull-centric. The Kree-Skrull War really defies my expectations of what an event is supposed to be. Instead of one contiguous plot, it, it seems to be naturally broken up into these mini-arcs. It seems a bit disjointed by modern standards, that's for sure. As fundamental as this story is, we'd be doing you a disservice if we didn't cover it all, but not all of the parts of it are equally interesting or relevant. But with that said, here goes Chapter 4, Avengers 92, All Things Must End. Written by Roy Thomas, penciled by Sal Buscema, inked by George Russos, lettered by Sam Rosen, edited by Stan Lee, with the cover by Sal Buscema and Sam Rosen. In the foreground stands Captain America, Iron Man, and Thor, looking dour and disappointed. I'm not sure how Sal manages to nail Iron Man's mask having an expression on it, but it is a home run here. Thor is pointing at our Avengers, Goliath, Scarlet Witch, Quicksilver, and the Vision, saying, Ye have disgraced the name of Avengers. Go then, and be Avengers no more. For all things must end. I feel that should have been ye hath disgraced. But anyway, the background is a destroyed building with the New York skyline. We open in the Avengers Manor with Wanda, Quicksilver, and Vision in their cities. Wanda's wearing a red jacket and hat with a green blouse and gloves. She's also wearing a yellow and red plaid skirt. Essentially, she's wearing an inversion of Vision's color scheme. The girls clearly got it bad. You know, I didn't even notice that on the first reading. And uh, we've got Quicksilver wearing what seems to be corduroy pants and a buttonless collared shirt. And Vision's wearing a white turtleneck. Now, I don't think they were foreshadowing his 1989 costume change in, all the way back in 71. But hindsight being 2020, it does have a familiar look. Wanda wants to take a walk in the park, but neither of the guys are interested. Wanda immediately takes a shot at them being sticks in the mud, which triggers some casual sexism from Pietro. The term male betters is used? Ugh. 
Wanda turns to the door with some icy threats for her brother when suddenly Jarvis came, comes bursting into the room. Jarvis is incredibly worked up because someone has leaked last episode's plot by the Kree to turn back the evolution of the Earth. Speaking to Vision, Quicksilver is extremely angered, saying, Humans understand nothing, android. Nothing but hatred and occasionally fear. In such a moment, I am thankful for the accident of birth that made me mutant. Goliath comes in at this moment, wearing his Leather Daddy costume. It's still a lot. Clint doesn't understand. Everyone agreed to keep everything secret, but apparently the technicians that had been turned into cavemen by the Kree have leaked the information of the mission. The Avengers turn on the TV to learn that H. Warren Craddock has been appointed head of the Alien Activities Commission. He is an older-looking white man, and he says that the aliens will be swiftly dealt with. He has a list of 153 quote-unquote alien spies, and he intends to ferret them out no matter where the trail may lead, even to Avengers Manor. This is pretty textbook fear-mongering, and it's playing up a McCarthyism analog. Quicksilver turns off the TV in frustration as Captain Marvel and Rick Jones walk in. Mar offers to give himself up so as not to impugn the Avengers' honor, no one is having it, except for Clint Barton, of all people, who suggests Mar turning himself in might calm people down so they can start chasing the real alien spies. Vision is having none of it. He suggests that allowing anyone to be confined for no reason, save being an alien, leads to more and more unilateral detainment of, say, androids and then mutants and giants. It's a sound argument backed up by plenty of real-world examples, but... We'll get to that. Vision insists that Mar will be safe in the mansion, but the captain is racked with guilt over being unable to help free the Kree from Ronan's evil or help against the Skrull menace. It's right then that a helicopter flies overhead carrying a familiar blonde. There's already an angry mob outside Avengers Mansion demanding they hand over Captain Marvel. There's an interesting effect where the panes of the window grow larger panel by panel to look more like prison bars as the perspective zooms in. The Avengers are aghast as the helicopter starts dropping out of the sky. She radios in and Marvell recognizes her voice. It's Carol Danvers. He leaps from the mansion window into the sky to slow the plane's descent. Yeah, this sequence gets real confusing. Mars' powers seem really inconsistent in this era because last I could remember from his own book, he could fly unaided. I mean, he's wearing the negabands. They traditionally impart flight, strength, and a level of invulnerability on top of even more esoteric powers. Instead, he just smacks ineffectually onto the bottom of the falling craft. Vision phases out of his clothes and manages to save Captain Marvel, who's having his life flash before his eyes. The Vision seems crushed in the crash. The layout of this page, though, is pretty darn cool, on the other hand. They use long vertical panels, and there's lots of motion. It's honestly one of those things where, like, on the first page where you first see him leap out the window and crash into the helicopter, I was cracking up reading this. But then when you turn the page, it, like you said, it's really cool the way they have it laid out. So I was like, all right. But uh, Carol is safe, but Wanda's worried about Vision. 
He phases up out of the ground, though, and tells her not to concern herself in his usual monotone. Wanda tries to explain how his words are hurtful, but he dismisses her, saying she's too emotional about some things. Pietro's upset, not abiding insults to his sister. He gets real soap opera real fast here at Avengers Mansion. The messiness would probably have escalated, but at that moment, S.H.I.E.L.D. planes buzz the mansion and begin circling it. Carol insists she isn't with them, but instead tells Mar that she wants to help him get away to an upstate farm to hide out until things cool down. Marvell thinks that running away will just confirm people's fears, while Vision points out that he may have already been tried by public opinion and encourages him to lay low while the Avengers seek to prove his innocence. Rick Jones tries to tag along, and Carol dissuades him. Guess she just wants some alone time with Mar. Right? So they take the Quinjet out of the mansion. S.H.I.E.L.D. scrambles to pursue them, but the Quinjet is far, far too fast for their planes to catch. The moment the pair zoom away, H.W. Craddock FaceTimes in to yell at Fury for letting him go. Is the H.W. thing an incredibly prescient call-out of President Bush Sr.'s appointment to U.N. ambassador in 1971? I'm thinking that he was used as an uh, inspiration for this character. That makes sense. When Craddock accuses Fury of letting Captain Marvel go... Duggan asks Fury why the formation was ordered to be loose. This is perhaps the most important exchange in the issue. Fury replies, I gotta look at some of our Japanese-American relocation centers back during the big one. Saw what they do to men on both sides of the barbed wire. So I didn't do that for Marvel, you old walrus. I did it for America. And I really liked that exchange when i saw shield flying in with fury i was like oh man this is gonna be bad but then hearing that response it really stirred me yeah and it's really relevant to things going on in our politics right now ostensibly this is a story about anti-alien hysteria but it's not really a stretch to see the immediate immigration parallels that are being drawn here and when it comes to a man like Fury, a man who fought in multiple world wars and the Korean War and Vietnam and has this history of being a patriot, for him to reject the concept of internment camps is really important right now as today in 2020, we are currently interring a large number of undocumented immigrants from Central and South America. Yeah, for sure. That's, I think, one of the big things that was causing that to stir so hard is I could tell as I was reading this, I was getting really emotionally uh, angry at Craddock. And to see that even back then, they put fury in there who's a strong i mean he's a strong character he's definitely like the grizzled war vet kind of a character and for them to put somebody like him in there to take the stand against this it just it it was very powerful and it cheered me to see that even back then they were wrestling with this and doing it the right way 
To further illuminate what we're talking about, on the next page, Rick Jones needs to take a walk, and he thinks to himself, gotta sort things out. I keep remembering when I was a runt back at the orphanage. That's when I first found a barrel full of old comic books. I read and reread them till they were falling apart. They were full of heroes, too, but simpler heroes, and even the few of them who turned out to be realies didn't have a lot of hang-ups then. They were just super-powered Joes with a clear idea of what truth was, and justice, yeah, and even law and order. That's when I first decided I wanted to be a superhero, or do anything I could to be around guys like that. Guys who lived and fought in a world of black and white, not murky gray. Let's face it, fella, the world ain't like that anymore, if it ever really was. These days, you can't tell the good from the bad without a scorecard. And there ain't no scorecard. And that hooks in to really the role that a lot of things were better back in the days nostalgia that is used to push the anti-immigration agenda that is putting people in internment camps today. Is that feeling that things used to be more black and white and that using that impulse that people have to return to a simpler time to justify some really terrible actions that are going on right now. Yeah, definitely. And when you hear people make those arguments, it's important to weigh in your head, like, who was it better for? Because sure, there's a, you know, a group of the populace that it was better for. And, you know, in that era, it would be, you know, straight white men. But it by it being better specifically for them in the way that it was, it was worse for everybody else. And I, I think, like you said, the, the alien metaphor there is very easily transposed into what we're seeing now. I mean, people in, in minority groups who have seen a huge uptick of power and equality recently in the last, you know, 20 years or so definitely aren't going to be lining up to go back to the 50s where it was so much worse for them. And this is one of the ways that I think that this both, both this particular part of the Kree Scroll War and uh, also the next chapters that we will be covering next episode, they actually have something very fundamental to say, um, but it is Definitely hidden inside a, a very busy, uh, somewhat scattered plot line. But we'll try to illuminate the points where it comes through really clearly as we move forward. Definitely. So it's about at this point in the story when Clint sees two men getting into a fistfight outside of the mansion. Once Goliath's picked up the seeming aggressor, the business-looking fella in a brown suit serves him a superhero summons to court. The next day, the Avengers head to court through an angry crowd, one of which has a sign that says, Avengers Disassemble, which, classic. Apparently, the Alien Activities Commission is happening at a city courthouse in New York. The Fantastic Four are there, and it's being billed as the most dramatic public hearing in history. H.W. Craddock is presiding and begins by calling up the researcher. 
The following page is fascinating because of blending the setting elements from our previous episode coverage with the panels of the men giving testimony. One even gives conjecture that the Avengers swore them to secrecy not to prevent public panic, but so that Marvel would not be imprisoned. That's some irresponsible testimony right there. While Reed Richards suggests that the Commission should accept the Avengers at their word, Ben Grimm, the blue-eyed thing, has some words. Avengers? What Avengers? The Avengers I knew was Thor, Iron Man, guys like that. These new guys might be okay. Me? I don't know them from Adam. They should have made Marvel show up here, instead of helping him take a powder. Superheroes like them for we don't need. Now, I have to say, it sounds like they're letting a little fan sentiment from this era leak onto the page. Just my take, and I wasn't even alive for this era, so we'd be better off asking uh, Kurt Busick on Twitter. So next up, we have Vision. He gets sworn in, but as soon as he's asked if he's an artificial human, they declare his testimony has no value in court, as a robot is only a parrot. Craddock is hamming up these interactions for the camera, but Vision tries again. Mr. Craddock, my design is such that my voice is always even, seemingly unemotional. But if I could, I would beg you in the most beseeching of tones to call off this witch hunt, this trial by accusation, before it does irreparable harm. It sounds like a Lieutenant Commander data line, and his words reach even the crowd. He's managed to emotionally connect with the room when H-Dub suggests that dropping the investigation is the equivalent of letting humanity's enemies have a field day. Demagoguery at work, I suppose. It's at this moment that Rick Jones receives a telepathic communication from Mar. Some kind of tentacled enemy has beset our captain, and Rick dashes off to help him. Craddock angrily adjourns for the day, and the Avengers have to leave the courtroom into the angry crowd. But even as they manage to get home without violence, it seems the mobs trashed the mansion. Poor Jarvis just stands there shaken and says, I... I tried to stop them, sir. Which is the very, very last line you ever want to hear your butler say. Apparently, the mob broke in and Jarvis turned off the protective devices so that the writers wouldn't get hurt, which, in my opinion, is just the right play. Even Quicksilver agrees. This issue made me want more Jarvis. But three figures don't agree with what our Avengers have been up to. It's Captain America, Iron Man, and Thor. Without any fanfare, they simply declare the Avengers disbanded by their own bylaws. It's a sudden and disheartening turn for sure. Now with the setup in place, we have Chapter 5, Avengers number 93, This Beachhead Earth. It was written by Roy Thomas, penciled by Neil Adams, inked by Tom Palmer, lettered by Sam Rosen, edited by Stan Lee, with a cover by Neil Adams and Tom Palmer. On the cover, the foreground of this cover, we have Captain America, Thor, and Iron Man attacking Mr. Fantastic, Human Torch, and The Thing, who stand over the felled bodies of Quicksilver, Scarlet Witch, and Vision. Right away, the reader can tell that things are different. 
unlike the previous comic that used a lot of classical angles and traditional comics art, this full-page spread is at a low angle looking down a room as Captain America, Thor, and Iron Man turn to see the Vision stumble into the room to the following caption. Sounds. We live in a cosmos of cacophony and cadence. Bleeding car horns, belched obscenities, staccato jackhammers, and a thousand other noises that civilized flesh is heir to, and perhaps once in a dozen lifetimes, a sound which rends the fabric of fate itself and tolls the death knell of an era. And in the panel, the sound effect. Thoom. Yeah, Neil Adams' art is a lot more fluid as Vision staggers in asking for help before collapsing to the floor. This triggers a bit of a silly sequence from the high drama of the opening. Iron Man Tony Stark is examining Vision and tells everyone that the android is dead, when a disembodied voice tells him that a lack of a pulse doesn't mean anything. The trio think it might be a spy or the killer, but the voice belongs to Hank Pym, in his costume as Ant-Man. Hank explains that he created Ultron 1 and that Ultron created the Vision. This makes Hank the leading expert on the Synthesoid and their best bet at helping the fallen Avenger. Ant-Man journeys into the Vision. Now, as much as I'd love to give you the play-by-play of the 11-page fantastic journey Hank Pym takes inside of his grandson... That is an awful way to put it. (laughs) It's just not really in the scope of our coverage. It just struck me as Roy Thomas using Neil's incredible skills while he had them available to him. That and that the page count of the book suddenly shoots up to 34. I really envied 1971 readers sometimes. Long story short, Hank is successful and wakes up the vision. I want to take a moment and comment on this image that would be a double-page spread. Uh, it's labeled Part 2, A Journey to the Center of the Android, and it's got the vision stretched out, a close, tight shot of his face with Captain America peering in as Ant-Man and several ants crawl inside of Vision's mouth. It is just a really cool piece of art with some really excellent detail. I really dig this kind of stuff when it shows up, and I wanted to take a second to shout it out. It'll definitely be in the visual companion. It's at this point, though, that the founders learn that the Avengers have been disbanded, but the trio has no recollection of such a thing. It seems a hoax has taken place, a dastardly deception afoot. Apparently, after hearing and then disbanding, the team went out to a farm where Carolus stashed Marvell. So even just getting over the farm fence is an excuse for drama for the Avengers because Vision offers to help Scarlet Witch over the fence and Pietro jumped in and forcefully told him that for years the twins have only depended upon each other and this triggers the Vision to veer off course in his telling of the tale to a very emo. And I did understand doubtless more fully than Pietro himself, that suspicion is a deadly fungus, festering and growing in fertile soil, that shrill voices and pointed fingers had made Avenger skeptical of Avenger, and mutant mistrustful of Android. For such is the bearing of hate, of prejudice, and the end of wisdom. Yet even as I drifted, 
thus lost in somber thought, I suddenly passed through the gates of hell. The vision is so much, y'all. The hell he speaks of was getting hit by three energy rays. Vision was hit and falls amongst some cows. One and Pietro catch up, saying, It's good he landed among these harmless cattle. And just like that, the cattle transform into the Fantastic Four. A fight breaks out between the outnumbered mutant siblings and some mysterious shape-shifting bovines. The Avengers are overpowered and unable to use his limbs. The Vision phased his way all the way back to the mansion where he was rescued. The Vision must return to the farm to save his comrades, but the trio of founding Avengers won't let him do it alone. And with that, we move on to part three of Avengers 93, War of the Weirds. The scene opens with Captain Marvel and Carol Danvers imprisoned by three scrolls. One of the scrolls is monologuing about the relationship between the Kree and the scroll when the scanner reveals an Avenger yet at large, Goliath. Out in the field, Rick Jones has found Clint and tries to get him to hide when the Thing and the Human Torch charge their way in on the pair. The Thing slings a rocky haymaker at Goliath's head and fells the giant. Rick Jones holds his own against the torch, but is ultimately captured by Mr. Fantastic, who reveals that he's actually a scroll, one of the first to ever land on Earth. These are the same scroll that were hypnotized by Reed in Fantastic Four number two. We even get to see their classic Muppet scroll looks. We covered these guys in our very first episode. Apparently, they were revived to continue their sacred mission, and the enemies they must defeat have arrived. More Avengers. Back in the prison, Mar makes his great escape. He reflects his unibeam off the wall to destroy the energy field holding him in place, then makes short work of his bonds as he remarks that the Skrull are too disdainful of the Kree to adequately research them, even though they're at war. Carol asks him if the Kree know that the Skrull are on Earth. This question sideswipes Captain Marvel, who realizes that banishment or no, he has to warn his people. To that end, he uses the tools in the scroll ship, prison, to construct an omniwave projector out of his unibeam. Apparently it isn't just an FTL communication device, but a deadly weapon. Once done constructing it, Mar holds the omniwave projector in his hands and pauses. Carol asks to see it before Captain Marvel destroys it in his hands immediately. The countdown for Blastoff is ticking down as Mar has figured it out. That's not Carol Danvers, it's a scroll. But it's not just any scroll. It's your boy, Kalert the Super Scroll, and he hits Mar with some classic sleeping gas and prepares for the flight. Meanwhile, the battle is joined between Cow Scrolls and Avengers. Both sides are taking serious hits before Thor takes down the scroll pretending to be the thing. Captain America takes out the Reed Pretender and Vision, the Human Torch clone, as the farmhouse explodes, revealing the ship that was inside the entire time. Goliath grows as large as he can to stop the ship, but suddenly he starts shrinking. Thor manages to catch him as he falls, but Clint is furious at his own carelessness in not taking his uh, growth serum. The ship gets away, and the team is licking their wounds as the issue wraps. 
Captain America is convinced they can make a comeback, but with the Avengers captured and taken to space, it's a low point as we move to the next issue. Written by Roy Thomas, penciled by Neil Adams and John Buscema, inked by Tom Palmer, lettered by Sam Rosen, edited by Stan Lee, with the cover by Neil Adams, Tom Palmer, and John Romita Sr. On the cover, we have Captain America, Thor, Iron Man, and Vision stand surrounded by four men in power armor, charging what seem to be forehead lasers, as an off-panel hand points to the frame with the text box. I accuse the Avengers of betraying Earth. Mandroids, execute the death sentence. We open on another full-page spread. Roy Thomas really likes opening with these, it seems, of the Avengers subduing the cow scrolls. Two are already pacified, while the third is writhing and swelling as only a shapeshifter can. Bit of the old body horror, you'll love to see it. Cap shoots the final scroll with a sedative ray, which sounds like something you should equip the police in Marvel continuity with, Tony Stark. But that's none of my business. The Avengers get the Fantastic Four on 1970s FaceTime to get Reed on the case. Ben hypes up Super Scroll a bit, but the most pressing question is, where is Vision? Apparently, he snuck aboard the Scroll ship using his intangibility, only to find Kalert using the brainwaves of Wanda and Pietro to find Adelan? Super Scroll is looking to destroy the hidden city, but the Vision won't let that happen. However, as they pit their array of powers against each other, it turns out that while intangibility and invisibility create a natural stalemate, it does nothing to stop the Super Scroll from flipping the switch and unleashing an all-powerful beam towards the Inhumans. Just in time, however, the negative barrier is deployed. The Super Scroll is furious at the Kree spawn live. For more information on that particular plot thread, we covered it in episode 9. He's unwilling to waste any more time on Earth, so he is returning to the Andromeda Galaxy with his prize. Vision calculates that fighting won't save the teammates, so he decides to retreat. Super Scroll curses at him for seeming cowardice, and Vision replies, The defamations of two worlds have no meaning for an android. Human pride cannot be mine, nor lust for combat. Only the cold logic which names exit as the most expedient action. And yet I'd have left my heart aboard the star-singing craft if human heart were mine to leave. First Cree, then Scroll, now inhuman. The web spawns new strands. The other adventures must know of them, unravel them, before it is too late. Back in space, the Super Scroll is monologuing, as any antagonist worth their scene-chewing salt would do. And he, he space-time warps to the Andromeda galaxy. So he's going to trade Mar for an end to his exile by the Emperor who fears his powers. Captain Marvel is more concerned that the scroll is going to make him choose between Earth and the Kree Empire. Just the thought alone is enough to leave him torn, so he's really hoping it won't come to that. As the ship returns to the homeworld, however... The Royal Palace anti-air defenses open up on Super Scroll's ship. Kalert lands and disembarks only to have the palace guard open fire on him at a personal scale. It's not an even fight, though. Super Scroll blasts through all opponents without breaking a sweat. In the throne room, the Emperor watches all of this when his daughter Anel joins him. 
We also covered her in episode 9. She tries to get her father to stop the bloodshed, but the Skrull Emperor refuses. Seeing Super Skrull's intent to displace him, he admits that only the exiled Clert could have accomplished the Earth mission, but states that a good ruler never lets their allies be strong enough to challenge their supremacy. The Emperor deploys an energy sphere that the Super Skrull struggles to escape from, eventually succumbing to smoke from his own flames. With his challenger out of the way, the Emperor is delighted to see the captured Captain Marvell for the chance to get the secret of the Omniwave, and now constantly asks her father to spare those people and gets berated for it. For a character with such little scream time, Anel's pretty consistently wholesome. I really like her here. Captain Marvel is stoic in the face of torture, but the Emperor reveals it won't be Mar who's subject to it, but Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch. He tosses them into an arena where they face off against a giant alien monster, but it isn't the hulking brute that threatens their life, but rather the triple-like replicating fluffballs that multiply uncontrollably when Quicksilver generates a tornado with his speed to defeat the larger monster. Seeing his comrades in danger, Marvell is forced to capitulate to save the lives of the two captured Avengers. Neither of them are happy with his decision, and the Emperor giddily gloats. Well, Kree man, begin now to weave the doom tapestry of all the Kree galaxy. This brings us to the final part of the final chapter of this episode. It starts with the warped and twisted form of H-dubs and some scientists demanding that the point-of-view character confess to being Kree. It's a nightmarish image, hued in red, and very masterfully done by Neil Adams. It turns out to not be an alien, but one of the scientists that were turned into cavemen by the Kree. All three scientists are regretting telling Craddock what happened as they are being confined and tormented both literally and in the paranoia. Craddock swears that nothing can stop the relentless tread of justice, not even the Avengers. The Avengers are at the mansion where they receive a suspicious insta from Nick Fury telling them to head out. As they are trying to figure out what's happening, Vision floats in with dire tidings that the Inhumans have been roped into the conflict. Clint takes the last of the growth serum as Craddock arrives with a court order and tanks. But this isn't even the real big show as a S.H.I.E.L.D. helicopter comes in carrying three titanium-powered suit mandroids. Their introduction page is pretty well done, and the use of a low-dutch angle by Neil Adams contributes to the feeling of the physically imposing armor. So a really amusing fight breaks out between the Avengers and the mandroids, where Iron Man uses roller derby tactics to outfight the mandroids that he himself designed. Why roller skates? The world may never know. We really need to see if Roy Thomas will come on the show. The fight's still ongoing at the end of the issue, when, from a manhole, crawls the battered form of the inhuman Triton. Normally, this would be where we do a further reading and collection, where we tell you where to find these comics collected in trades, and where we find more stories featuring these themes and characters. But we'll do all that, and much more robustly than usual at the end of the next episode. 
This episode, we actually have a couple of listener questions to answer. By the way, you can reach us with questions or comments online at Artifacts of I on Twitter or at Artifacts of Infinity at gmail.com. First question was from the Play Comics podcast. I haven't read much, but I have to wonder something. From which perspective would you rather see an MCU entry? Personally, I really kind of find the Kree a bit tiresome and would like to see more of what's going on with the scroll. Um, I just find them more interesting at this point, And I think a lot could be done with that. The, the way that like, see, so with the Kree, it would be tempting for the movie makers to just use the, the pink Kree form so that they, you know, have less budget involved. And with the scroll, they're really just so, visually striking i would like to see that more and you could you could play a lot with that with you know visibly different aliens aliens who can't pass i think that would be really interesting so this is a really interesting question to me because of the way in which they have constructed the scroll in the mcu now uh, obviously, we haven't gotten to there, but by the modern time in the 616, the scroll have lost their homeworld, and it seems like the MCU scrolls are already there. Uh, that means that from the Kree perspective, the scrolls are terrorists, and in a post 9 11 world, that's like a very controversial place to be, but it seems like we're getting more into the fact that these scrolls also seem to be largely like hunted, hated, and feared. So I have to also echo that I would much rather see things from the MCU scroll perspective because, in my opinion, even in the 616, the scroll take a really unequal amount of damage than the Kree take like losing their home world to Galactus losing colonies to the Annihilation Wave losing people to Conquest like the scroll in 616 just do a lot of losing and I really want to see them win at, at least once they definitely get warped a lot Cody from the CBB chat asks, the scrolls have a queen, right? Does she give birth to all the scrolls like a xenomorph queen? No, I had to laugh at this one. <laughs> it's a really good question. Um, so scrolls do come from eggs. Uh, you got to get that one out of the way first. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, but we do see scroll females who are not the queen um, give birth to kids. Um, the human torch's wife had an egg. Um, that's like around, I want to say like Fantastic Four 380 through 420. It's somewhere in there. I don't remember exactly. Um, but no, they have more of a... Um, 
spiritual queen who uh, represented their shape-shifting god because of stuff with the celestials that I would really love to get into, but it just, it does not uh, actually go for the, like, for this part of our coverage. We are so far away from being there. <laughs> T- the the last question we got was just, I don't remember who asked it, so forgive me. If it's you, shout out, and we'll give you credit in the future episode. But it was Team Cree or Team Scroll. In this era, uh, so so reading these comics, these ones right here, uh, I'm on Team Cree for the Cree Scroll War because it's not their fault that Ronin, like it's not the Cree's people's fault that Ronin took over from the Supreme Intelligence, and as we'll see in our coverage, the Supreme Intelligence is actually pretty cool like is pretty decent where the scrolls here are like not the best and in fact are probably some of the worst that scrolls are for a while personally having read uh much less than you uh i am team anel and okay i will go down with that, that. is so valid that is so valid. <laughs> Anil actually rocks here. And, you know, spoilers for, for comic from 1971. Obviously, it's going to be part of our coverage. But uh, Anil is relevant for the upcoming event that will be taking place uh, this Spring, it seems. It seems more like a spring event than a summer event. But, um, yeah, she and Mar apparently in got, like get together in this area era. And I really wish that we could have gotten to see a lot more of her because, like I said, she was consistently wholesome. Yeah, she she proves herself time and again. So that that's going to be my final answer is is Team Anel. If sacred places are spared the ravages of war, then make all places sacred. And if the holy people are to be kept harmless from war, then make all peoples holy. This has been Artifacts of Infinity. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Everett. And this was edited by Everett Christensen. We will see you in the infinite cosmos.